It's my favorite part of every superhero movie. It's the origin story, and everybody has one. Welcome to Pinecone Turkey's The Origin Story Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Henry Harris, and it's my privilege to interview superheroes from all walks of life to find out how they got from A to B, to see where they might be going next, and how we all can learn from their journey. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Origin Story Podcast. I am your host, Michael Henry Harris. Uh, I hope you all had a great Thanksgiving. The Harris family did. Uh, Thanksgiving is a little interesting, being a member of a Native American tribe, and that we are fully aware that this Thanksgiving myth we've been handed growing up is not true. But, you know, what? Thanksgiving is a great chance to be with family, and it puts a big exclamation point on something we should be doing every single day, which is practicing gratitude. So uh, we had a great one, and I hope you did as well. Before we get to our superhero today, I have a couple of housekeeping things. The first one being that Pinecone Turkey is publishing a book. The book is called 12 Authors, 12 Stories, and it'll be released December 12th. So that's 12, 12, 12, 12. We're doubling down on the number 12. And uh, what happened is a couple of years ago, I asked 11 other authors who I respect and like their work to write me a short story based on a different month of the year. And they've done so, and the results uh, will be published very soon. So I'm really proud of it. The stories run the gamut of uh, genres uh, and, and uh, the emotions that you'll feel reading them. Uh, and they're really, really great. They're actually great stories, and they would be amazing on their own, but compiled in, into an anthology. It's a lot of fun. Uh, and you can read it you know, any way you want. You could just read it straight through, because I think you will, because I think the stories are that good. But also, if you wanted to space it out and read January and January, February and February, March and March, that would work as well. So it's designed to be uh, to be user-friendly, but they're really great stories. I'm very thankful to the uh, 11 other authors who took this journey with me, because I've never produced a book before. And uh, so it's a brand new thing for me. I've learned a ton. I made a ton of mistakes along the way in the process, but uh, the results are amazing. And that book will be released December 12th. It'll be on Amazon, obviously, but also in independent bookstores. You can order it through there as well. So uh, I encourage you to check it out. It makes a great gift for yourself and uh, for, you know, your 47 of your closest friends. Uh, so if you need information on that, obviously, Amazon.com, uh, PineconTurkey.com. And uh, we'll be uh, announcing that again as well. And uh, what we're going to do throughout 2019 is feature some of the writers in their month. And that's going to be a lot of fun, too. So you get to see a little bit of behind the scenes of what it was like as, a, as an author to create a story with the prompt and inspiration of that month. So I hope you guys enjoy that and check it out. And in fact, if you're in Atlanta, Georgia, where I am currently, uh, we're having a huge party to uh, celebrate this. So we're going to go down on December 12th, obviously, to the Highland Inn Ballroom and uh, on the North Highland there in Virginia Highlands. And uh, we're going to have a huge party. It's going to be great. We're going to have books there. We're going to do a little bit of readings from some of the stories. We're going to have an uh, open bar. We're going to have some food. And, uh, and amazingly enough, Will Haraway uh, of the Haraway Brothers and the Sundogs, an amazing musician, is going to play for us. So it's going to be a ton of fun. And directly after our party, which technically ends at 8.30, at 9 o'clock that night, the exact same location, and I'm so thankful for Right Club Atlanta for partnering with Pinecone Turkey on this, it is the Right Club holiday show and it is always a ridiculous blast it is so much fun there's such talented people but it's also just a great party also uh, and if you're unfamiliar with right club right club is three bouts of two opposing writers two opposing ideas seven minutes a piece the audience picks a winner 
and the proceeds go to the charities of the winner's choosing. And it's really fun. Atlanta's best literary talent is there, and they are on their game, and the audience is fun, and, and it's, they're into it. And it's just a really great time. So please come to our party and then stay for theirs. It's a ton of fun. Uh, two more things. One, I would ask if you have not joined the Flock email, please do so. It's an amazingly uh, simple thing, and it's only two emails a month. The first email contains your minimum l- monthly dose of art. <laughs> That's easier for me to say. Uh, these are things that I've found and curated over the month that I think you'll enjoy. Uh, it's a short film, poetry, a short story or nonfiction narrative, and a piece of visual art. And so uh, you're getting to know uh, some new art for you and uh, getting exposed to different creators. And uh, it's just a lot of fun. It's uh, very easy to uh, sign up for. And also, if you ever want to opt out, just do so. No worries. The second email I send a month is an update on podcasts. And you know about this podcast because you're listening to it. But we also have another podcast called the Owls on Culture podcast. And that's where me and my son, Hank, he's 12, and I'm mid-40s, uh, 46. And uh, it's where we discuss different uh, cultural things. It's usually a lot of Marvel movies, but it's also some plays and things like that, short stories. Just different artistic things that we kind of, I won't call it a review as much, but it's a little bit of that. Including a recaps of uh, Doctor Who because we're huge Doctor Who fans. Uh, so that's it. So that's the housekeeping for today. Uh, today's superhero is Bernardo Cubria, and he is a Mexican actor and playwright. He is a really talented dude. Um, his play, The Giant Void in My Soul, which is just a great title, right? Uh, recently had him nominated as Best Playwright, uh, Best Director, Best Comedic Ensemble, all at the Los Angeles Theater Awards. So that's that's a big deal and very cool. His play Neighbors, A Fair Trade Agreement, and we talk about this during the podcast, was a semifinalist for the O'Neill Playwrights Conference. And if you don't know the O'Neill Playwrights Conference, it's the big thing that every playwright submits to. It's open admission. So it's all across the board. Uh, If anybody's written a play and they're serious about it, as far as knowing what they're doing on the business side of things, they're submitting to the O'Neill. So a, a, a huge amount of submissions. So the fact that it made a semifinalist is a really, really a nice feather in his cap. Uh, it was a, produced at Intar Theater in a co-production between Inviolet Theater, a theater that I'm a member of as well, uh, and Intar, uh, which is a really great theater. And we talk a lot about uh, Intar during the podcast also. Uh, he's also been on television and many things, including Queen of the South, NCIS Los Angeles, Notorious, The Good Wife, Blue Bloods, Bold and the Beautiful, and more. And he's been on the New York stage in so many great theaters. The Public Theater, my goodness, what a theater. Rattlestick, The Mint, Intar, and In Violet. And so he's also a voiceover actor. He was in the film Coco. And he has a recurring role on the Disney animated series Elena of Avalor. And now he is also, if that was not enough, he's the co-artistic director of Ammunition Theater Company in Los Angeles, a company dedicated to producing new plays that reflect diversity and serve underprivileged communities. So boom. A nice thing to do there, too. So I encourage you to listen to it uh, the whole way through. He tells a lot of great uh, a lot of great stories, especially at the end. There's just one of my favorite stories I've ever heard. Uh, he gives a version of that, which I, which I thoroughly enjoy and hope that you will also. Uh, so without further ado, I bring you Bernardo Cabrilla, your superhero for today. Bernardo Cabrilla. Hello, sir. Thanks for being on the podcast. Thank you for having me. 
So uh, you had a podcast as well. As I recall, I was on it, and it was the first time I'd ever done anything like that, and it was so much fun, and that's part of why I wanted to do one uh, for myself. Oh, well, that's nice of you to say. Uh, yeah, I had a podcast for, very, for probably four years, and I loved it. I loved doing it. But it was about New York theater. That was the title of it. Yeah. And then I moved to Los Angeles. <laughs> yeah. And so it kind of stopped making sense to do it. And also, I lost the passion for doing it. Because it's a lot of work, as you know. You have to schedule the interviews. And also, I learned my lesson. I don't know how you feel. But if you don't put one out like every single week, then your downloads start, you know, dropping. And so that's interesting. <laughs> so I've, like, because I wanted to do this and... I didn't want to get caught up. I, have, I don't look at stats. Oh, wow. And I don't even try to do one once. I just try once a month. Wow. Like, I'm really doing it mainly for me. That's great. Uh, and if other people get enjoyment out of it or learn something or yeah. are inspired, that, I mean, that's, that's the ideal. That's the goal. But I totally. think I was worried if, one, if I started trying to edit it, uh -huh. like, you know, try to make, like, high production value. Yeah. Or if I was going to worry about trying to do one once a week or looking at stats, I would just get too depressed and just stop doing it. Well, that makes sense. I mean, because I think eventually I just, what happened with my podcast was that the sort of audience, quote unquote, yeah. grew pretty quickly early on. And then it just reached a point where it just was never going to get bigger than that. So why is that, you think? Well, I was lazy. I mean, I, I think if I had been the kind of person who went to podcast conventions and like went to theater programs across the country and promoted it and... But the truth is, I never wanted to just be a podcast person. Right. So I like I remember a friend of mine was like, why don't you make some postcards and go to the drama bookshop in New York? I know how you feel about postcards. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and just put them down so that people know that you're doing this theater podcast. Yeah. And I just I you never did know. that <laughs> out of laziness, out of also like what like I'm gonna pay like two hundred dollars for these postcards so that like three people start listening. You know, I just always hoped, like you've said this to me before in the past, but just that I was gonna do something cool and that people would talk about it and hopefully people will start listening. Right. Uh, and and you know, I still to this day meet people who are like, I listen to your podcast in the theater world, and I'm like, whoa, that's really cool, that's awesome. That is very. But cool. I don't miss doing it at all. Okay, that's, yeah. I was wondering that. <laughs> yeah, I don't. I mean, I miss the conversations I would have. Right. Because you are you get people that you admire and that you care about to sit down and talk to you for an hour. And yeah. they kind of have to. And that was awesome. And I loved how honest people could be. But I don't miss dealing with difficult people and dealing with uh, like rescheduling and all of that. I don't miss any of that. Right. Yeah. <laughs> what was, uh, like, well, who was your biggest get, do you think? Or did you even think of it in those terms? Or? Sure. No, I did. Of course. Yeah. I Well, not of course, but I did. Yeah. Uh, like Stephen Adley Gerges for me was like a big deal. Yeah. Like I get the Pulitzer Prize winning playwright on yeah, my show. Shit, that's and, amazing, right? You know, and someone that, you know, you you and I know because he's a part of our theater company, that he was like on the board of our theater company and stuff. But it was just cool to get to ask him theater questions for an hour and a half. Right. Someone yes. who I like, not only, I don't like like his writing. I think it's, I'm like obsessed with his writing. Right. And so, you know, and he could not have been kinder and nicer. And it's funny, most of the quote unquote, you know, because there's like actually famous and then there's theater famous. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, never the twain shall meet. Never the twain shall meet. But most of the quote unquote theater famous people were always incredibly nice, always willing to work around schedules, like always very down to do it. I love and that. And it was usually people who, were not quote unquote theater 
famous who were the most difficult who would ask for like final listen who would ask me to edit out like 87 things they said you know so without naming names like what kind of person are you talking about like what like playwrights actors okay who it was interesting they were you know it got to a point where sometimes people would email me and be like hey i want to do your theater podcast i'm like awesome let's do it and then it was it was just amazing to me like how scared you think i don't know what it is i really don't know what it is but even the way I'm talking about it now, it, it just shows me that I'm happy I'm not doing it Because <laughs> <laughs> I just got over it. You know what I mean? Yeah, I just got over it. I loved doing it, though. I want to be very clear. Like, it also was, my wife jokes was like my therapy for four years. Oh, interesting. You know? Because I got to really open up with people and talk about the fears of being a theater person and the insecurities and just talk to artists. I, I love artists, you know? So. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I, I, I love the podcast. Oh, thanks. Uh, yeah. So if you wanted to resurrect it, <laughs> I, I would certainly listen. Oh, yeah. Uh, so you talked about having a New York theater podcast and moving to L.A. Why did you move to L.A.? And when did you do that? And, and how, do you, how did you go about making that decision? Well, it's weird. I kind of, I have made a lot of very big life choices without thinking too much about <laughs> them. But I guess, I, in retrospect, I realized that they were slowly happening, right? And I now looking back, I think I just got to a point where I wasn't willing to do the hustle that New York demands of you anymore. It just got to be too much, you know. And uh, are you talking day to day living hustle, or are you talking like the the, the career hustle? The, all of it, okay. you know. The it, you have to you have a three auditions in a day. It's twenty degrees outside. There's snow, and so you need your boots. But one of the auditions is for a bathing suit commercial. So you have to have that in your backpack and a different dress shirt. Right. And you know, uh, you also have your laptop because you have your meeting afterward that you have to you know. And you're just walking in the wind, and your eyes are crying because the wind is hitting your face so hard. <laughs> and you're like, "Whoa, this is intense." You know, yeah. it's just hard. I love New York. I think it's an amazing place, and I think everybody should move there at 20 and leave when they're 30. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, that sounds about right. I missed yeah. so much um, in New York. I missed my car, only in the way that I missed my trunk. Yeah, Cause, of like, course. Like you were saying, you'd leave you know, at 7 o'clock in the morning, and you'd be gone all day, and just you're carrying like a snail, basically. Yeah. Oh. Was, that part... I don't miss that at all. I miss a lot about New York, but I do not miss that. My wife always says that all her memories of me in New York include me having like this giant backpack on. <laughs> you know? She's like the least sexiest prop. <laughs> it's just like me with a backpack at a club, you know? Because I did. I always had a freaking backpack with me. And all actors do. They have some kind of bag that they have to lug around with them all day. That's amazing. You know? Uh, well, how was the transition? What did you do to prepare? Because you had... Nothing. You had... <laughs> You had representation in New York. I did. What, did. Were you able to cross that over? Did they also have an office in Los Angeles? Or Talk a little bit about that for people who might be considering them. Yeah, so I was half represented in L.A. Because I was lucky. I have, a, I have a really great commercial agent, and they have an office in New York and L.A. Awesome. And so that was a very easy transition because they just were like, you'll start working in L.A. with them. And that really made my transition a lot easier because as soon as I got to LA, I was already auditioning for commercials, but it was great. And that is a way that you can make a living. It's the way I pay my bills. So I'm so grateful to them. Yeah. Um, But then legit wise, I... Define legit for those who... Oh, sorry. Yes. So legit is a very funny and pretentious word for (laughs) television and theater and movie agent. So you have an agent who represents you in that world. And then you have a commercial agent that represents you in commercial land, right? 
uh, and never the twain shall meet. We'll, <laughs> we'll see how many times we can use that today. That's and uh, That's the drinking game. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and I did not have that, but... I had what I thought was a very impressive like eight meetings set up when I got to LA with different agents. Okay. And that was the most humbling week of my life was when I came to Los Angeles and I met with eight different agents over two days and I went not one for eight, two for eight. <laughs> I went O oh for eight. And I remember one of the agents, this was a big moment in my life. One of the agents, I showed them my resume and I only had one television credit to my name. And everything else was theater. Yeah. And I was very proud of my theater resume. And I right. busted my ass to be a theater person for a long time. And you worked at good theaters. And, well, but this is, it's all perspective, right? <laughs> right, yeah. And so I'm sitting across from this agent. This nice agency in L.A. And he looks at my headshot and he turns it around and he goes, he shows me my resume. And he goes, which one of these plays matter? And I was like, oh, excuse me? Yeah. He's like, yeah, do any of these matter? And I was like, matter? <laughs> yeah, what the, what the fuck does that it's like, mean? They all mattered greatly to me. Right. But what he was saying was like, who could I, what, which of these plays can I say to someone and they'll know what I'm talking about? And so then I, in desperation, was like, because this was like my fifth or sixth meeting and I knew nobody was interested in me. Right. And I was scared because I wanted to have a career. <laughs> and I remember I went, oh, well, uh, I worked at the public theater. That's where Hamilton started. And he said, but you weren't in fucking Hamilton, were you? Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. And I said, no, I was not, sir. <laughs> and needless to say, that was not my agent. Holy shit. And so it was That's very humbling. hilarious to me. Oh, I know. But Cause they like, just... Because like, you're one line on some shitty TV show? Would, it, would that have mattered? Of course. It, much, of course more, it much more than the other thing. Yeah, but you're 100% right. I mean, it's all perspective, right? Yeah. I mean, when I... I think about it now. When I first got to New York... For me, you know, it was always like a different goal, right? Like to work at a theater like Intar was my first goal. I just was desperate to work there. Right. It's an amazing theater, the home of Latino theater. And then you work there and that wasn't enough, right? Yeah. So then you want to work at a larger theater, right? Mm -hmm. And then you want one line on a TV show and then you want 10 lines on a TV show. Right. And agents in LA are not interested in those other perspectives because all they care about is making money off of you. Right. So they're like, why would I want you to go do a play at Rattlestick where you're going to make $200 a week? Yeah. Where I'm like, but Rattlestick is an amazing theater and you get to work with some of the most talented humans on the planet. Exactly. <laughs> they're like, great, we don't care. Yeah, they're like, we, they don't. They, they never do. My agent now in LA, when I get uh, the occasional email from a theater in New York asking if I'll audition for a play in New York, mm -hmm. my agent always sends it with his joke phrases, Please, for the love of God, turn this down. <laughs> and he's forwarding me auditions for New York. At least he's uh, forwards. <laughs> I can I can see the agent that would just be like, he doesn't really need to. I know. This. But you know, to him, it's like, why would you go waste your time doing that? Where to me, you know, where my soul is still the happiest is theater. So I know exactly why I would go do it, right. so that I could be happy. Plus, also <laughs> for like the ancillary benefits of you know, you work with somebody and then they have a project. You know, the more. The more times people say yes to you and you say yes, that I mean, that always leads to seems to leads to something good. Totally, but they uh, only but, they only want an, if it leads to something they know will make you money. Right. Yeah. You know, well, that's their job. It I is their job. their job. And honestly, I'm happy to have someone in my life who thinks about that. Right. Because <laughs> I don't have that brain, so I never think about 
I, it's, you know, I joke that my wife was the first person to ever make me think like this, (laughs) (laughs) you know, and now I have a kid. It's very important that I think this way. That's right. But I still, when someone sends me something, I just see the project. Yeah. Like I just. Do you, do you have a manager also? I do. I have a manager also. Now, so do y'all get together and think strategy wise, all right, for 2019, these are the people I want to target because this is where I want to be at the end of this year. Uh, no, I, I mean, I think that would probably be a smart thing to do. Right. My, my manager knows the things I'm interested in and she's great and she's very supportive. Like she comes to the plays that I write. Uh, so that to me means a lot because that doesn't make her any money, right. no, no. <laughs> but she supports me as an artist and that, that is cool to me. But you know, she's just trying to get me to make money too. Yeah. Like her biggest interest about me right now is commercials because yeah. that's where I make money. So that's where she makes money. Right. So she is mostly interested in like, have I updated my commercial reel? You know, have I sent a thank you card to the person who booked me in the thing? Like, you know, at the end of the day, those people, their job is money. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the system. What? Yeah. Uh, uh, where are you from? I was born in Mexico City. Okay. Uh, but then I moved to Houston, Texas when I was two years old. When you were two, okay. So yeah. No, no memory of that first stint in, in Mexico. Nothing, no. I mean, I think I have a memory of sitting in an empty house, but I don't know if I've made up that memory. Oh, yeah. Do you have childhood memories I, like that? I do, yeah. Just vague, like, did this really happen? Yeah, I have like a flash image of sitting on like a cold marble floor, which is very like Mexico City house. Okay. And I remember being next to a stuffed lion that seemed giant. And I know we had it because I've seen pictures of that lion, right. so but I don't know <laughs> where where that memory came from or where that idea. But I do believe that is my first memory, but it's probably not. So uh, why did they move to uh, Texas? I think my dad, the well, there are two reasons, right? There's like the actual real emotional reason, which I've deducted, <laughs> deduced, right? Yeah. And then there's the just... My dad uh, was working in tourism, in Mexican tourism, and he basically could move to Cancun. Uh, And this is when Cancun was nothing. It was still like, you know, just starting out as a city. Or Houston to go help promote Cancun and tourism in Mexico. Okay. And he gave my mom those two options. And my mom said, I'll only do it one year away from Mexico City. So he told her it would only be for one year. And then she chose Houston because there were better hospitals than in Cancun. That's for like kids and stuff like that. Oh, for like for y'all's healthcare, yeah. Because she was a nurse or something. No, no, no. Just because she wanted to, for us to be in a safer place. Because Cancun was such a baby town that she was like, "Well, where? What if we get sick? Right, right. (laughs) There's like a crappy hospital. That's it. Legitimate concern. Yeah, totally. Uh, This is uh, the police is coming and flying over us right now. Uh, Exactly. Watch out for the chopper. Yeah. Um, We're gonna pause for two seconds to let you enjoy this chopper noise. (laughs) All right, uh, they didn't get us. And then, uh, so so we chose Houston. And uh, I think the real reason was that my dad grew up in my grandfather's shadow in a big way. My grandfather was in uh, the Mexican Navy and was in politics and was kind of like, my dad grew up, like his father was in the newspapers and stuff like oh, that. Oh, wow. And my dad even had to grow up with like bodyguards and stuff like that. Oh, okay. And I don't think he enjoyed any of that. It was yeah. a lot of attention for a 15, 16-year-old kid. And I think my dad just wanted to go make a name for himself and be his own man, you know? Yeah, I can Which I understand totally understand that. that. Yeah, Com- of course. Completely. So I think that's actually why my dad wanted to leave Mexico. So were y'all middle, upper class? or like uh, Upper, middle class, yeah. yeah. Very, yeah, very lucky. And what, is, uh, what was Houston like? Houston, uh... You know, I lived in a really nice little bubble. I mean, 
The crazy thing about Houston is we basically grew up in Mexico. Like all my parents' friends were Mexican. We spoke in Spanish at home. <laughs> like we went to church with a bunch of Mexicans. Yeah. Like it was like kind of being in Mexico, but we got the perks of living in the United States of America. That's awesome. You know? Uh, but Houston was great. I mean, it was a, I, once I became old enough to understand what I wanted out of life, I wanted to get the hell out of there. <laughs> right. But, but as a kid, you know, I got to play soccer. I got to yeah. be a kid, you know, and be like that. When did uh, you first start uh, wanting to do any kind of theater stuff or film or TV or? Well, now looking back, I realized that I did it my whole life, but I never thought of theater as a career until I was 18 and in college. Like I never, when I was in high school, I didn't tell people I want to be an actor. Did you, did you, did you want to be an actor? No, I didn't. Okay. I mean, I did theater and I loved doing theater and I would write plays. Like I remember in the sixth grade, I wrote a, like a long sketch, basically an hour long sketch about the OJ trial and I made all my friends do it one lunch period. Outstanding. Yeah. So like. But now looking back, I'm like, oh, clearly I like theater. <laughs> right. But to me at that moment, it just felt like a fun thing to do. Yeah. I would always, uh, my cousin Tano in Mexico City, if he listens to this, he and I every Christmas and Easter would write a play about our family and make our cousins do it. And then we would perform it for the family. Like oh, to this day, that. we still talk about that stuff. So now looking back on it, I'm like, oh, obviously you're yeah. going to be a theater person. But you know. In, what did you think you wanted to do? Or did you have an idea? Well, the first thing I ever wanted to be was the Pope when I was like seven or eight. <laughs> yeah. That was like Aim a high, brother. yeah, I know, I know. If, if you're gonna be a priest, you might as well be the Pope. You get the car, you get the hat. Um, I thought I wanted to be the Pope at one point, and then as I got older, I think I wanted to be a soccer player if I could. Were you good in high school? I was good, but not. You know, when you're 15, you think you're very good. Right. I think if I had like gone to Brazil and played with really good players, I would have been humbled very quickly. Yeah. But I, ultimately, at the end, I thought I was going to like work at the UN one day or something. Okay. I was always into politics, and that was kind of what I thought I would do. Did you go to college? And so then, this is a, a very long story. I'll make it short. I went to college in Mexico after high school because I wanted to live in Mexico and work in like human rights and politics in Mexico. Okay. And I, think, and I was studying international relations, and at that point, I thought... I'll go to this school in Mexico and eventually I'll work at the UN and like represent Mexico. Now, was your granddad still alive? Was there, uh -huh. and was he, was he still like a public figure type person? Yes. I mean, and, and let me be clear. It wasn't like he was a politician. He was in, he was the head of the Mexican Navy. And so he worked for presidents and stuff like that. I mean, that's, no, it's crazy. No, it's helpful. like being the secretary of defense or something like that. You know what I mean? Oh my gosh. I mean, again, this is the Mexican Navy we're talking about. So it's not like we were at war often or, <laughs> <laughs> You know, you're talking more about trade and like building ships for Japan or something like that. But, but yeah, I mean, it was crazy. I mean, his story is amazing. My my grandfather grew up dirt poor, like he had nothing. Yeah. You know, and he at the age of 14 went to Naval Academy to give himself an opportunity. At 14. Yeah. Wow. And then he, from 14 until the day he passed away, was a naval officer, and he like busted his ass to give us. To give me the privilege to, at 18, choose to be a poor theater person. Right. Like, that's yeah. all thanks to him. Isn't you know? amazing? Yeah, I mean, because if he had decided to be a waiter or something, yeah. my life would have been very, very different. Dramatically different. <laughs> so were you, where where's college? Was it in Mexico City or somewhere It was else? in Monterey, Mexico. Okay, that's on the west? It, no, it's north, kind of east, near Texas. <laughs> yes. Yeah. No, it's fine. Just like the West. Well, the people from Monterey will American get very upset, but but there's no reason to go to Monterey. It's not there's not much going on there. 
It's like an industrial town kind of. And how did you pick? Like, did you, was your thought process? I know I'm going to Mexico. Which one of these schools do I want to go to in Mexico? I, or was it looking at American schools also? I no, guess? I didn't look at, like, I didn't even care about my SATs. I always wanted to go back to Mexico. Okay. Because I, I grew up spending the summers in Mexico. And so I idealized Mexico because I would go there in the summers. And at, from the age of 13, I got to go to, like, nightclubs. <laughs> <laughs> and, like, I had a very different experience as a teenager in Mexico than I would walking around the mall in the United States of America, oh, right? And I'll leave it at that. And then, But I, I just thought Mexico was fun, and I liked the culture, and it was a lot more about family, it seemed to me. And I just thought that's where I want to live the rest of my life. And then when I went there, I realized just how American I was. Oh, tell I didn't, me about that. What do you well, mean? that... Well, look, I think each culture has its things, right? But for me, you know, I was shocked at sort of the classism in Mexico because I grew up around racism in the U.S., right? right. But I didn't really know classism as, as strongly as it is in Mexico. I mean, in Mexico, there is a middle class, but it's mostly like you either have or you don't. And the people that have have sort of these coded words for people who are poor. Like there's this word, naco, which I hate. Which supposedly means like someone without any like, like a uh, class, but not class like money, but like who doesn't like use the fork the right way or some bullshit, okay, right? Yeah. But really, it's a word that like comes from the Spanish taking over a, 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 a native people, you know, okay. and like they're different than us. Gotcha. And I remember this is a big moment for me. Was I went to a nightclub when I got to to Monterey with a friend of mine, and he had dark skin, uh, and we show up and. The bouncer says to me, you can go in. And I'm like, oh, I'm with this guy. And the bouncer kind of called me over and he said, next time, don't bring your, your brown friend, he said. Really? And I flipped out and I made a huge scene. Yeah. Because I had grown up in the States and I thought, well, no one would ever do that. Little did I know like five years later, I would be at a bar in Houston and we weren't let in because I was with a black friend and then we made a scene <laughs> there. So, you know, each country has its problems, right? Right. But there were just things about it's a different culture. It's a different country. Yeah. And I had grown up watching Saved by the Bell and drinking Coca-Cola. You know what I mean? Like it was just, it was different. Oh, that's interesting. What did you study at college? I was studying uh, politics there. Okay. But the main thing I did there, I worked at Amnesty International for a year. Oh, and right. that was a really important, awesome year of my life. Yeah. Uh, it was the first time I was like an activist, quote unquote. And, you know, it was intense. It was like a really crazy year of my life. Do you remember any like particular like projects or things you were working on? Well, at that moment, Amnesty was working on uh, ending torture in prisons. That was their big campaign. Okay. This is 2000, 2001. And so we did a lot of stuff around that. I remember one thing that we did was we we uh, we brought in this uh, human rights sort of hero from Central America named Rigoberta Menchu, and she came. We brought her in, like we picked her up at the airport. Right. I got to spend three days with like an actual like woman right. who's changing the world, who won the Nobel Peace Prize. Like, you know, when you're 18, it's amazing. It was oh, life changing. Yeah, you know, and very humbling. I bet. Uh, but it wasn't what I wanted to do. Did you have a lot of friends in college? Uh, yes. In Mexico, I had a group of like six or seven people that were good friends of mine. I, I had a girlfriend there as well. <laughs> so life wasn't makes, bad. It just, better. it does make life better, but I just wasn't happy. And then the, the, what happened was I got back to the States for the summer and the day that I was supposed to go to the airport, my mom called my name and I was sitting in my room and I remember I couldn't stand up. I literally could not stand up. My body shut down. 
It was this crazy moment in my life. Really? I, I could not, I just couldn't move. And my mom came in and she was like, are you okay? And she still to this day tells the story. I was like, pale. My mom was like, what's going on? I was like, I don't want to go back. No shit. And so then, anyway, so then. You're 21 my, or 20? How old are you? I'm 19 at this point. 19. And so then my parents said, okay, look, you can stay in Houston, but you're not going to not go to college. They said, go to U of H. It's a public school. And just take one or two classes. Just so they, because they, I think, rightly thought, if he doesn't go to college now, this kid's going to, like, never go to college. Right, got to keep you in it. Just to do, and they said, do you don't have to declare a major. Just go take, like, a history class and, like, a whatever. And I went, and one of the classes you had to do an art selective was acting one. And see, this is what I mean. Like, I think my subconscious was like, hey, why don't you take acting one? <laughs> you know? Right. But in my head, I swear, when I signed up for that acting one class, it was in no way thinking so that I can be a theater person one day. So, and you, so you may not want to talk about it, but so what was going on at college in Mexico that was so, that, that made you feel that way? I think I was overwhelmed by activism and... I think it was, uh, you know, it's funny because now being a theater person, you under, you probably understand this feeling, but it was, I was sort of disillusioned. I went with all these big dreams and I was 18 and I had all these thoughts. And I really think that I believed I was on an airplane to go save Mexico. Like now looking back on it, I really think that I had read enough Che Guevara that I thought that I could do that. Right. <laughs> and then I went to school and most of my classmates thought I was weird because I cared about these things. Yeah. And most of the time I would stand on the corner and hand out pamphlets about torture in prisons and people would make fun of me. And my friends were like, Bernardo, what are you doing all day? And they'd right. be like, what, what's wrong with you? You're like, I'm trying to change the damn world. And I'm like, I'm, I feel things. Right. Right. <laughs> I have all these feelings about life and none of you care. And I think that I, it made me quit. It just made me... Yeah. It took me a really long time to become active in politics and stuff like that again. I think it was just a traumatic year of my life. Right. And your body just kind of shut down when I it was guess. time to I, go. I really, it's a, the only time in my life I remember that feeling. Where I literally, I could not stand up. I mean, I could have, I'm sure. But something, yeah. you know, the spirits, something stopped me and said, no. Yeah. Like, this is not your path. And... What? When you were in the acting class at U of H, did, uh, did that feel right? It felt so right. As soon as I went to that first class, my teacher, I'll name her because she changed my life, Carolyn Houston Boone, uh, she was tough. She was real, real tough. She made people drop out of theater majors in about one sentence. No kidding. But she was doing it on purpose. I actually think it was, she saved people's lives. I was about to say, yeah. <laughs> if, you can, if you can find a way not to act, you should, you should do that. And that's her, that was her belief. Yeah. She had a big sign on her door that said, uh, congratulations, you have talent. I might as well congratulate you for having two eyeballs. Oh my God, that's beautiful. That's and she was, great. that was her. You would get up and as soon as you walked on stage, she was the teacher who was like, what are you doing? Why are you here? Why are you in the room? And if you didn't have an answer, right. I, mean, I remember she threw chairs. Like, oh, this is like old what? school. Oh, yeah. <laughs> One time she got so frustrated with uh, two classmates of mine because they hadn't learned their lines. Yeah. And she threw her chair down and was like, this is bullshit. You guys are wasting your time and my time. And she stormed out of the room. <laughs> oh, man. And it was fucking awesome. I mean, when you're yeah. 19, 20, you're like, this is amazing. Right. And does. all you wanted was to do a scene and for her to say, you did a good job. Uh, and That's, the times that she did that for me, I, I mean, I remember them. I remember what scenes I was performing. You know, it, was, it just meant you give that person so much power. Right. 
I, I to this day, if she came and saw me in a play, yeah, I would be so nervous. I'd freak out. Yeah. yeah, I'd be like, oh god, Carolyn's here. I really hope she thinks I'm good today. You know. Yeah. But she was great, and she, you know, she put me on the right path. I Did think. you stay at Houston? I did until I graduated college. I was there for four years, uh, and then I went to clowning school after that in Italy. Tell me about that. This was again all these big life decisions I've made. I swear I don't. I, I don't realize I'm making a big choice. A friend of mine got into clown school in Italy, and he was like a friend, Andrew Hurst, someone who I love. I'll say his name. And he said, "Hey, I'm going to go to this clowning and commedia school in Italy. You want to come with me?" And I was like, "Sure, I'll go live in Italy for three months." I didn't like commedia. I didn't like clowning. There's nothing about it that interested me. Yeah. At this point, I just wanted to be like in movies or be like Gal Garcia Bernal or something. You know, like that's what I thought about. Right. But I was like, sure, I'll go live in Italy for three months. And then that was a big life-changing moment because it changed my taste in theater. Oh, that's fun. Like, clowning that school really changed my whole life. So give us the 45-second, uh, uh, <laughs> what is Comedia? Tell us about clowning in this particular way because, you know, not this is... Yeah, yeah, totally. This is not just theater it, people. Yeah, not just theater people listening to this. So it's about, like, old-school comedy, right? Like, what did people in the Renaissance make fun of and make jokes about? And it's kind of like distilling humans into their most base form. What do humans want? They want to eat. They want to poop. They want to have sex. They want money. They want love, right? Yeah. And about sort of finding the humor in that we're all, at the end of the day, kind of dummies. (laughs) (laughs) You know, we're all just stumbling around hoping that someone will love us or someone will give us a piece of chicken. You know, like, (laughs) that's all we really want. Right. And I loved it. I thought it was, you know, it, was, it felt like I was pretending to be Bugs Bunny. And mm. it, hit, it made me realize, like, oh, my first person that I ever wanted to be was Bugs Bunny. Not Marlon Brando. Right. And, like, why do I want to be Marlon Brando? That guy's kind of a dick, you know? Like, <laughs> but Bugs Bunny, like, I like that. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it was, it was awesome. What city were you in? I was in Reggio Emilia in the north, which is not a place to visit. It's nope. not pretty. It wasn't, like, beautiful Italy, like... This was a small kind of town. And all we did was 10 hours a day of just physical theater. Oh, that's amazing. The skinniest I've ever been in my life was when I lived in Italy. And I was eating pasta and gelato every day, but I was doing 10 hours of physical theater a day. Right. You know? It was awesome. And you were improvising with people from all over the world. There was a Turkish woman, uh, this guy from... There, these two circus performers from England. These oh, two girls cool. who had like, literally grown up in the circus. Oh, my gosh. And they could like jump and do four flips and then land on their feet in the middle of improvising with you. Oh my you God. know, it was cool. It was just radical and fun. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what did you do after college? You did that. And then so I, that's the three month thing, right? That's the three month thing. I got back to Houston and I did. I tried out being an actor in Houston for about six months. What is the acting scene like in Houston back then? And then and how what is it now? If you know. Yeah, I do. Uh, it's much better now. I mean, when I was there, there was the Alley Theater, which is the big theater there. Right. And if you were a Mexican actor in Houston, if you were going to work at the Alley, it meant that you got to have, you were probably going to play Rosencrantz in Hamlet, and you were going to have to put an accent on him so that the audience laughed. Okay. And there was this guy, I don't, I don't want to say his name because I respect him, and he opened doors for Latino actors in Houston, but there was this guy who was kind of the token Latino in Houston theater. And I was watching him and his career, and I said, fuck that, that's not me. <laughs> I can't be like the brown guy in town. Right. You know, it's funny because people now, because there's been such a push for diversity, like when I was, that didn't happen yet when I was in Houston, you know? So people forget like what this guy went through, this actor, 
it was really rough. Like, I remember watching him in a play at the Alley Theater, and he had an accent for no reason, except that old white people were laughing in the theater. Oh, and I remember being like, this is crazy. Right. But nobody else thought it was crazy but me. <laughs> now, right. that would never happen. Yeah. Because most people would be like, this is crazy. <laughs> right, right. And then like five people would be like, I can't believe I'm not allowed to laugh at that anymore. And then you'd be like, well, that's fine. I don't know what to explain to you. Yeah. But yeah, so I just was, I knew that if I stayed in Houston, it just wasn't, it wasn't going to be the kind of career I wanted to have. Right. I was going to have no uh, say in my artistic voice. Yeah. It just wasn't going to happen. So I left. And where did, did you debate on where to go? No, I always wanted to go to New York. Okay. I, I, this is a weird thing. I, even before I knew I wanted to be an actor, I always knew I wanted to live in New York at one point in my life. Oh, that's interesting. I went with my parents to New York for their 20th wedding anniversary, and I was 16. I remember there was a Ralph Nader protest in Times Square. <laughs> <laughs> Sweet. So whatever year that was. And I was like, this town is awesome. Yeah. I just liked it. And I was like, I want to live in New York one day. And I was also really into Woody Allen when I was a kid. And like, I know that's tough to say now, but like, I used to love seeing his movies and I, like Manhattan. Yeah. I was just like, I want to live like that. Right. I, of course, then moved to New York thinking that I would have a doorman and live like, <laughs> yeah, right. go for a jog in Central Park. <laughs> Turns out that was not my life. Yeah. I don't think I ever once jogged through Central Park. No, I did actually <laughs> once. I did once. But yeah, you know, uh, so I just went. Did I put a hundred headshots in a backpack and I flew to New York. You had the backpack. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it was already there. Yeah. So how did you find, where did you, what neighborhood did you start living in? Did you have people there that kind of helped you? I had one person who you know well, because she's in our theater company as well, Karina Richardson, who was uh, a best friend of mine since I was in the ninth grade. And she was someone who always knew she wanted to be an actor. And she always says that she knew I wanted to be an actor, but that I was like in the closet about it or whatever. (laughs) Oh, that's interesting. So she always kind of knew. But so she got an apartment for she and I to live in with her cousin. Oh, awesome. And so I got to New York and we moved into a terrible, 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 <laughs> terrible apartment in Bed-Stuy. I paid $380 a month, which is great for New York. But the catch was there was no heating, which is illegal. And I didn't know that. And neither did Karina. But we would go to bed like this jacket that I'm wearing right now. I would go to bed in like a hoodie, a hat, gloves, long johns. And I would just under like four, you know, sheets. Right. And then I remember I would always wake up at like five or six freezing and I would rush to the subway to go to Manhattan to wait for my temp job or whatever because I couldn't wait to get in the subway because it was so... it was warm. I w- yes. And I would get in the subway. I was so happy to be in the subway because I was freezing. <laughs> yeah. You know, but you don't know any better. I didn't know. I, di- I didn't know that you could call 311 or whatever it is in New York or... I just knew that I wanted to be an actor. That's right. all I knew. But in theater school, they don't prepare you. No. I didn't know no. where to go. I didn't even know, like, to get an actor's access account or this is, like, very kind of <laughs> industry like baseball, church. but, like, yeah. was, like, but still, like. Yeah, I didn't know. I, you just go. And I was like, well, someone will ask me to act, I hope, you know. So what, uh, what did you do? I mean, the advice that, and what advice would you give someone Moving to New York now, who might be in their early 20s, you know, what, what well, did you do right? What did you do wrong? And what should they do? Well, what I did right was I met people. I would go to plays. I would look online. And I just went and talked to people. Mm. And I always thought, I'm going to talk to the people whose work I like. So I would see things that I liked. And I would approach those people afterward and be like, I just got here. If you need someone to 
help produce a fundraiser for your theater company. Like, I just didn't care. Right. Like, I wanted to be around people whose work I liked. And that was a good move. Yeah. The bad move was I had horrible headshots. I didn't have a reel. I didn't have any on-camera acting experience, really. Yeah. You know, I, I didn't know. I, I didn't know what a commercial was. Like, it all, you know... Now I would tell people, especially because they have their iPhones and stuff, like have make some scenes, <laughs> shoot them, get some good headshots, right? Create an actor's access account. You can do all that from like you know Minneapolis. Like it doesn't matter. Yeah. You don't have to be there yet. Uh, just like practical things. But the biggest piece of advice I would give people is say yes to everything when you first get there, and keep saying yes to the people whose work turns you on. Oh, don't work with people because you think they're going to change your life or they're important. Because that'll destroy your soul. <laughs> but like pester the people whose work you like. Yeah. You know? I think that's, that is great advice, especially the say yes. Yeah. When you're, you're young, you're there, you just never know oh. who you're going to meet, who's going to be your friend, who's, how you're going to learn about things. Yeah. Say yes, because the, the, there's no negative in doing it, though. No. And I said yes to everything. Yeah. Everything. When I first got there, I just didn't care. Are you writing at this point, too? Because you were, you were writing no. earlier. No. No. I started writing about a year into New York. I, ju I took the Labyrinth Theater Master class, and okay. that was a really big thing. Not because the class is fine. No, no offense to the Labyrinth Theater Master class, <laughs> yeah. but it was in that class I met a friend, Raul Castillo, who then he introduced me to all my friends. Okay. He was the person, because what will happen when you move to New York is you'll meet someone who will bring you into their social circle. And that person will change your life. Yeah, and I'm going to plug your podcast right now because oh. the, the interview you did with Raul was amazing. Oh, great. Yeah. I love that. So y'all should, people, I'll link to that. Oh, great. Awesome. People should listen to that. So, so Raul changed my life. He was there. He had already been there. He was semi-established. And he was like, hey, man, uh, I'm Mexican and from Texas too. And I have all these friends who are Mexican and from Texas. And they all do theater and we meet at a bar every once in a while. You want to come meet us? And that was a huge thing. That's amazing. Because in this moment, I thought I was the only Mexican from Texas who cared about theater. Right. You know? Yeah, yeah. Because you don't know. I, I, well, at least I didn't. Yeah. And then walk in this bar, and there are all these guys with last names Alvarado, Perez, you know, yeah. Escamilla. And I'm like, oh my God, these are my people. Right. And these guys care about the shit I care about, and they like the shit I care about. And wait, I was the only kid in my school who watched John Leguizamo's Freak. You guys watch John Leguizamo's Freak? <laughs> yeah, right. We should make shit like John Leguizamo's Freak. You found you your know? tribe. You yeah, found your and that, that was the most important thing. Uh, and in that class, I started writing plays also. Okay. Um, and so, yeah, it was a big thing for me. What, uh, yeah. When did you feel that you were on the right track? I, I, when does that happen? <laughs> <laughs> right, Am I on it now? Yeah, that's, uh, yeah I would say you're on it. Uh, when... Uh, when I started working with those guys that I met at that bar. Yeah. Because I was doing things that I felt didn't matter. I thought they were the most important piece of art ever created. You know? Yeah. I just really did. Well, that's how you have to... Yeah. <laughs> that's where you have and to. so I didn't care. I mean, I remember we produced this night of short plays called One Night in the Valley. And all the people involved in that production have careers now. That's... Like, it's really kind of crazy. That's like, very cool. Like, I, I, you know, this may sound grandiose or something, but I hope that one day someone writes a book about Latino theater and talks about that production. Because, like, one of the women who wrote, Tanya Siracho, like, she's a showrunner, has a show on, on, on uh, FX called Vida. You know oh, what wow. I mean? Like, she, she, and then Mondo is one of her head writers, and then Raul is, like, on, you know, like, all yeah, of us all have careers up. now. Yep. And 
that was Raul was just nominated for Independent Spirit Award. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like this is crazy. Right. Because we were at that point rejects. We were told by the establishment theater world that we didn't belong. You know, and I know it's weird for people to hear this, but it just started changing for people for 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 people of color. Like when I first got to New York, it wasn't there yet. Like it's still not there yet, but now that we have some opportunities so people feel like we're fine now. But like at that point, we had to make a night of short plays because nobody was ever going to put on a Latino play. Like it was so rare, right. unless your name was Jose Rivera or something. Yeah. And we knew that. Uh, so you started creating shit for yourselves. Yeah. And we did. I mean, that's the thing that I miss about youth is believing that with no bitterness or no irony about it. Like now, even when I think my play matters, I still am like, ah, no one's going to come. No one cares. Plays don't matter, you right, know? Yeah. But when I was doing my first stuff at Intar, I didn't think that way. All I thought was, this is everything. This is important. Oh, it's so important. I mean, I would go over my script, like 10, 10 pages, just over and over and because o- it was the only thing that mattered. Yeah. And to my financial detriment, I mean, I didn't care about. Like, I would basically just kind of make rent every once in a while. What, uh, <laughs> what were you doing for a day job? Because so, that is huge. Yeah. Like, well, really Karina important. got me a job at the law office where she temped. Okay. And I would serve people. Oh, wow. I was making $12.50 an hour, which is not a livable wage in New York. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, but the guy who, the lawyer who ran this uh, uh, law firm, his daughter was an actress. And he was so nice to me. He would let me print scripts, like 10, 50, you know, whatever. Yeah, that's a huge. People don't understand how, how, <laughs> how amazing that is. No, like for our, like in Violet, when we go on a retreat, like yeah. there's an email that's sent out like, can it's someone print scripts? Money it's print a lot scripts. of money. Yeah. He would let me print scripts, print sides. If I had an audition, he was like, go. I would sometimes be gone for four hours from my job and he would still pay me for those four hours. Because oh, he man, was treating me, guy. oh, he, he this man... I guess it's okay to say his name. Dan Katz, best lawyer in New York. I love this man. Because he was treating me the way he would want someone to treat his daughter. Right. You know? And he, like, when I would book something, he would get so excited. He would come to all my plays. Like, he came to Neighbors. Like, he brought all the lawyers to Neighbors. Like, it was, that's just luck. But, you know, those people, you remember them. I mean, I'll remember Dan until the day I die. Oh, it's so important. Yeah. It's so important. But, you know, I wasn't making any money. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about Intar for a little bit. Yeah. Because that, that's, it's a really great theater. It's been around for a long time. Long, long time. Uh, how did you start to work with them? And is that a case of like you infiltrating and, and yeah, I mean, around I, these guys? And that's it. So that night at that bar, I was kept hearing this Intar. And they were all like, who the fuck's Intar? Yeah. And they were all <laughs> like doing uh, writers' workshops at Intar and short plays at Intar. And, there was this world, Intar. I didn't know what it was. And it turned out it was the oldest uh, English language Latino theater in the world. <laughs> and that, that's where like John Leguizamo got his start and most of the Labyrinth Theater guys. And I was like, oh my God, how have I never heard of this place? Right. Because again, like in my university, no one cared about Intar. So I wasn't taught. I, I read like two Latino playwrights in college, like Jose Rivera, you know, like that was actually probably it. Yeah. I read Marisol and like a teacher threw it at me and was like, here, read this. You stop talking about representation. Like, you know, just (laughs) calm down, Bernardo. (laughs) Yeah, 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 yeah. Just there, there's one. Just uh, calm down, kid. Um, So yeah. And when I walked in there, it was home, you know? Yeah. 
It's this, the space is nothing to write home about. You take this crappy elevator to the fourth floor, but the people who run it are amazing people. Like Lou Moreno, who runs Intar, is heroic. I mean, you know, he is. he's not, like, if you're the artistic director of Intar, you're not doing it because of the paycheck. No. You're doing it because you love uh, Latino theater and you think it's important to continue a tradition of having, you know. A welcoming spot yes. for experienced and inexperienced actors to come in. Exactly. And writers and work out their craft. Lou's. Lou's awesome. Yeah. And so that's what he did. He, you know, I wasn't good. Like I was hungry. I was ambitious, but I didn't, I didn't know what I was doing, but they didn't care because all they cared about was that I was willing to do the work and that I was one of them. Yeah. And they wanted to give opportunities to people like me. So how did you get good? Cause you are good. Ah, uh, well, I mean, what was I that mean, process like and how, how, did, uh, how did you end up getting better if well, uh, so this is, I really don't mean this is self-deprecating way, but I don't feel that yet. I mean, I, I feel I am better. And I think the more you do it, that would be my piece of advice is just always be doing it. Get your ass on stage. Yeah. No matter where the stage is or, Hey, you have a slow week, like learn, learn some lines and uh, tape an audition and send it to a friend of yours and be like, Hey, what do you think of this? Right. You know, it's just, you have to do it. There, everybody wants to do it. So... If you want to do it, you have to do it. Right. And eventually other people will ask you to do it. But at first, like, there's 87 guys who look just like you and want to act. <laughs> <laughs> right. So how are you going to be the guy that ends up acting, right? Yeah. Uh, so I got better by being in plays all the time in New York. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, the eight years I lived in New York, I was always in a play. Just basically always in a play. Yeah. At varying levels of, you know... From off, 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 off Broadway to <laughs> off Broadway, you know? And so that I think may be better. And I'm not saying this in a self-deprecating way, but since I moved to LA, I think I've become a worse actor because I think I'm better at on-camera auditions. Right. But in LA, you're not in a play all the time. Yeah. So your muscles aren't being exercised. Yeah. It's one thing to leave much. a rehearsal, a four-hour rehearsal, and then go audition and then go back to the rehearsal. Then it is like leave the gym, have a smoothie, and then go... <laughs> You know, say five lines like detective. Would that be a kale smoothie? Yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. So, you know, it just, I, I, that's why I miss plays. I miss like practicing. Do you, you know? mind talking about your process a little bit on, on when it comes to auditioning, say, for, um, you know, a small role on a television script? Like, yeah. I mean, so how do, it what do you depends do? how big it is, right? Okay. If it's a simple scene, it's like two lines and it's like over there. No, no, that way, right. right? Then I will, you know, read it 10 times, 15 times, do it once for my wife. She'll be like, why are you pointing that way? That's weird. No one stands like that, you know, <laughs> things that you don't think of. Yeah. Um, but I always, I always do note cards to learn my lines. That's how I learn my lines. I'll put the cue, the cue on one side and then write my line on the other. Okay. Even if the line is one line, I will do that for it. Uh, I'll try to action it. There's this acting method that a friend of mine taught me that works really well for me where you the action is like so what are you doing with this you know to intimidate you to uh tickle you to seduce right. you so you're, to, find, you're finding an action to play yes so that you're not just saying a line right and so i will do that and then i will do it a billion times until i have to do it in front of a camera in a room okay and that's what i do now actually i've been trying to prepare less because I think I can over-prepare because I get nervous about forgetting the lines and stuff like that. Right. But then I think sometimes you go into the room and all you're thinking about is 
the lines and not the scene. You know, right? You lose some of your spontaneity, or you, or you lose some of your big picture of well, what, you're not what am I trying to doing. achieve? You're only standing there thinking lines, 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 lines. Yeah. So you're not acting. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you're just reciting words. Yeah. You know, and hopefully you've recited them so many times that there's some kind of action. But I think the most important thing is to go into the room as yourself, be calm, understand that it's okay to go up on a line. They don't care because they they will tape you until they they want you to book it because right. their job is to put someone in that role yeah. that's what they're getting paid for so you know they want you to be good yeah so worry stop worrying about yourself and your nerves and your ego and people liking you which is my biggest mistake in life is a desperate need for everyone to like me oh that makes and, you very human yeah <laughs> well yeah but i but you know it's funny if, if there's one thing i can teach my son i'll be like it's okay if every once in a while someone doesn't like you <laughs> like yeah. that's fine because that's going to happen that's going to happen whether you want it to or not yeah so it's fine like just go to sleep <laughs> so uh since you brought up diego yeah. i'm uh how is being a father um how has that changed your outlook as far as is any life really well other things just don't matter so much anymore yeah it's just about at the end of the day i get to go home to him so like it's like the other day it's a tiny thing but i was on hold for this commercial which means that i'm one of the people they may cast so it gives you hope, right? right. And hope is what kills you, right? <laughs> so, so hope. So I'm like, okay, I may be in this commercial. It's a national commercial. I'm dreaming about that money because money matters to me because I have a kid. And then I got the call, and they're like, hey, they went with someone else. And that's more painful than never getting the on hold yeah. because then I would have just lived my life and, and just forgotten that, about it. Yeah. But so that hurt. And usually, what I would have done is that night I would have opened a bottle of wine, a bar of chocolate, and I would have. Put both of those things into my mouth until I fell asleep <laughs> to numb the pain, right? Right, yeah. But now it's like, no, I'm just going to go take Diego for a walk. Yeah. And he's going to like smile at like me making a weird sound with my mouth. Yeah. And it's fine. Like that other stuff doesn't matter. It actually doesn't matter. It's, it's, it's amazing how much we think certain things matter or mean something. Yeah. But they don't. It's weird that in that moment where Diego was born, all that I was like, "Oh, my wife matters. <laughs> right this on. baby matters." Like, the, I, who got cast in the show is ego and stupid, and like I don't care. Like, right? I, it's it's weird. It just changes your priorities. And when did you know it was time to leave New York? You know, well, that I think again, thing. slow, slow, gradual thing, but. Uh, I've told you this story, but I'll tell the podcast people. I, I had this one moment that was kind of a key moment where I was doing a play at a theater that it had been my dream to work there. It's the public theater. I don't mind saying it. Yeah, it's and it's, it's amazing. I mean, it's like, it's the theater that did Hamilton. What I said to that, <laughs> that agent who was like, were you in fucking Hamilton? So I was not in that. But I did a Shakespeare play there. And I was the, the lead. I had the biggest, I played like the two roles. I was on stage basically the whole play. Yeah. It's a dream come true. I mean, I'm like at the public doing Shakespeare. Yeah. And I was doing it. And one night, a playwright friend of ours who is in our theater company, Bixby Elliott, I'll yeah. say his name, he came to see me in the show. And afterward, he was like, you want to go get a drink? And Bixby doesn't really drink. So if Bixby says you want to go get a drink, you get excited. You're like, yeah, right, let's exactly. go get a drink with Bixby because he'll have half of one and he'll be a little tipsy. <laughs> so we go up to the bar in this theater, which is a very nice bar. And I ordered two old fashions. 
And the bartender at this point knew me because I was there every day. Right. And so he knows me as the guy who's in one of the plays here, right? And he comes. I give him my card. It was probably like 32 bucks. And he walks up to me and in a soft voice goes, do you have another card? And I was 32 years old, you know? Yeah. (laughs) And I went, and I went, uh, what? He's like, it didn't go through. I was like, can you run it again? He tried it again. It didn't go through. And Bixby was like, don't worry about it. I'll pay for it. Yeah. And then we sat down. We had the drinks. And it was wonderful because Bixby's a wonderful person to hang out with. But when I got home, I was like, what am I doing? This this career is going to kill me. Yeah. Because theater does. It kills people. You see those people. You you go to auditions and you see the person. The theater has destroyed their lives. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and theater, by the way, is my favorite thing in the whole world. And I love it, but it's also like a drug. Yeah, you can do it until the day you die. And if you really don't care about money at all, right? Like if you can re- literally live with roommates until you're 80, and pay 200 dollars a month and have rats and bed bugs, then great. Like you Go are, you Knock are gonna be up. so happy. But I guess I was not one of those people. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, I started wanting like a bigger space, and like I wanted to have a family. Yeah, and I wanted Lauren not to be like, hey. Like, rent's due tomorrow. What's going on? Like, right? are you a fucking grown-up or not, you know? And I... But that moment, it was many things leading up to that moment. But that moment was kind of like the... It, it was a, the metaphor, right? Like, it was yeah, like, that, okay, dude. It's very, like, very clear, very yes. stark event. Yes. Something to happen. Yes. Now, did you ever think of, like, giving up acting altogether and trying no. to find, like, a professional, like, a different type of professional No. Job? That depresses me to no end. Yeah. That would be very hard for me. I'm sure I may, I may have to do it in my life, right? Yeah. That happens. Like, at any moment, I could not work for one or two years, and then I would have to decide, do I want to be able to send Diego to college, you know? Right. So suck it up and go do something. You got to do what you got to do. Yeah. Uh, but it... This is, I know about myself, even if I did do that, I would always find a way to be creative because I can't not do it. Yeah. I mean, even in moments, I I imagine you're the same way, in moments where I'm not creating something, I get very depressed, very bitter. I become a bad person. I don't like who I am. And so it's funny, that's another weird thing about having a kid is now I am even more like planting my feet in I'm an artist because I want my son to grow up around the happiest me. Exactly. And so it's funny. Some people are like, oh, I had a kid and I quit acting because, you know, it's time to get some money. Right. And for me, I understand that feeling. But for me, it's more like, no, I want Diego to know, like, dad writes plays. Yeah. And he is really happy when he does that. And he is really happy when he's like in a black room with four of his closest friends. And they're like putting on some weird experimental play about elephants that's really about capitalism. (laughs) You know what I mean? Right. And it's going to teach people that capitalism is bad. Like, that's who I am. Yeah. What I've found for myself is that if I don't have a project going, and it doesn't have to be a play, it doesn't have to be a film, but it has to be something creative. If I don't have that thing that I'm working towards, then I am just very unhappy and I'm a jerk. Me, yeah. I get very grouchy and jerky, and that's why I'm always... (sighs) You know, yeah. it, the medium may change, but yeah. like the, the process and what I'm looking to get from it is the same. Yeah, I mean, I think a mistake we make is we, well, I, I can just speak for myself, is that sometimes I think what I'm after is the sort of other stuff that doesn't matter, the like the status or the like 
Have I been a guest star? Have I been a series regular? When in reality, what I'm after is just creating right. and being creative. Because in my life, no matter what size room it is, if I'm doing it with people I like and it's a project I believe in, then I'm very, very happy. Right. And that's actually what I want to do for the rest of my life. I don't want to be in movies. Does that make sense? Like, I do, right. but I want to be in awesome movies. Yeah. I didn't like watch, you know, I don't know, a Crash and think like, that's what I want to do the rest of my life. No, like, I saw like awesome movies that I loved. Yeah. Like, I want to be in Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. You know what I mean? Like, but I'll want to be in that if it's a play or a site specific <laughs> <Right. laughs> performance art piece. Yeah. You know, that's what I really want in life. Uh, I've never been to Los Angeles. Okay. Confession. Uh, Tell me about it. How is it to live there? How is it different being an actor there? L.A. is much better than I thought it would be. I had a lot of preconceived notions. I thought most people were full of, full of shit and uh, only cared about being famous. Right. Uh, and that is very true. <laughs> <laughs> but they're also really cool, awesome people. And there's really great food and really great art stuff going on that has nothing to do with Hollywood or acting or celebrities and turn and step and repeats. Um, but it's a different world. I mean, in L.A., people want to be famous. Like, it's... In New York, some people want to be famous, but most people want to be involved in theater, and that's what they care about. You know, in L.A., like... For example, when you do a play in L.A., if you book a TV show and leave a week before you open, nobody bats an eye. Because they're all there for that. In New York, half of the cast would think that you're a terrible person, that you turned your back on the play for a TV show. Right. You know? Like, it's just a different, they value different things. And in L.A., like, people care about who the casting director is. You know, they read Variety. Like, I've never read Variety in my life, you know? (laughs) But, like, in L.A., people are like, hey, did you hear that they're going to shoot a show, a pilot about Mexicans? Bernardo, are you going to audition for that? And I'm like, what? How do you even know that? And they're like, it's on my Twitter Variety feed. Deadline. You don't (laughs) read Deadline, you know? Right. Because that's the town. They care about it. So cool. Yeah. It's the way I care about, you know, fancy football updates. I read about that. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, but, you know, I have a really nice life. I mean, I'm, I live on the beach. <laughs> uh, it's 70 degrees every day. I walk with my son. I take yeah. him. My son's park is a swing set that looks at the ocean. <laughs> oh, yeah. And I go and I push him on the swing while he looks at the ocean. It's, I can't, what am I complaining about? That reminds me of a line from Swingers where, like, the guy is trying to give the guy a pep talk. He's like, it's sunny 365 days a year out here. How could you not be happy? Yeah. Like, well, it this. is. I, I mean, I'll say this. I was happier in New York with my career because of the artistic sort of juice I was getting. But my quality of life? That's a weird thing about acting sometimes. You forget about life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, just like basic life stuff. Yeah. Like, life is awesome in L.A for me yeah i have my wife i have my kid we have really good friends that's also interesting about getting older right it's like now i have like six friends and i'm okay with that instead of having like 40 quote-unquote friends you know right. what i mean yeah it like, narrows down as yeah older, doesn't it yeah and you're okay with that and you're like oh it's nice those are the people i like so i'm gonna have dinner with them twice a week you know <laughs> yeah um yeah i just like life there now you've been able to find a community out there of people to work with too how did how did that happen well this is thanks to inviolet theater our theater company because through inviolet i wrote this crazy play called judgment of fools it was like a crazy interactive play tell everybody about it it is it is special well it's a crazy play it's about there it's a it comes from my clowning school background but so it's about 
it kind of does these scenes and then asks people to judge the characters on stage. And it's really about judgment and sort of our Twitter culture. And like, that's what the ultimate goal of it is. But, you know, it can get crazy. Like, we would have nights in New York where people were very drunk and yelling, you know, very crazy things. <laughs> um, like, there's this monologue, this scene where, like, a woman tells a story about sleeping with this married man. And the point of the game is, as she goes on, yell the word S-L-U-T when you think that that's what she is. And it's about how we judge women and about how we look at sexuality and stuff. And, uh, you know, it was always very interesting but very also like, you know, it made people scared. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and people would argue in the audience and it was cool. So anyway, I would submit that play to places. And one day I got an email from a theater company in Los Angeles who was about to start an ammunition theater company. And they're like, we've decided to make the first play we ever produced, Judgment of Fools. It's like, you guys are idiots. How yeah. great does that feel? Oh, it's the greatest feeling in the world. Yeah. You know how, because you've had your place produced. <laughs> when someone says, oh, that thing that you wrote in your desk at three o'clock in the morning, right. we're going to put money behind it and put it up. Right. We think it's worthwhile. We think it's yeah. a good thing to do. We're going to hire other people to memorize the things you wrote. Right. And we're going to hire a guy to build like the world of what you wrote. Yeah. And we're going to hire this woman to design lights that make your thing look cool. Yeah, that's crazy. <laughs> it's crazy. I remember... Uh, in a, a play that I wrote, I, I, just a little small stage direction of like, you know, she puts her like baby book away or something like that. And, and I remember like eavesdropping and hearing like, you know, five people talk about how to build this baby book. And it was just like, oh crap, that's right. Like yeah. they're, they're doing what we said to do in this thing. And sometimes it was an idea you had for a second. It's not like you put a lot of thought into it. No, no, no. It's like, oh, now we're talking about a tequila bottle for five hours? Because right. <laughs> I said that the character has a tequila bottle in his hand. Like, yeah. oh, what kind of tequila bottle? Like, It's amazing. Yeah. And so that happened, and it just so happened that they were going to open the play the week I was moving to L.A. Oh, my gosh. That's perfect. And I landed, and I really just, you know, I think for me a big part of uh, my time in New York was in Violet, which is a theater company that you started, to give you credit, with Angela Rosano. And I, that theater company was my home. I knew once a month I'm going to go sit in a room with people that I really like and we're going to try to make ourselves better artists. Right. And I knew that if I was going to move to LA, I needed to find something like that. And so in a way, ammunition is my second wife, you know? Yeah. Because <laughs> I had to divorce my first wife because she stayed in New York. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm still an inviolate member, but I just needed that yeah. monthly. It's weird. Like, even the stuff I thought I didn't like about a theater company, like arguing about whether or not we're going to have a banquet at the end of the year. Right. Like, I like that stuff. Yeah. And so I it was really lucky because I literally landed in L.A. with that. With that. And they were nice enough to say to me, keep coming. That community is so important. It's everything. Especially in a field where you're just constantly being rejected. Yeah. And... <laughs> Being made to compete whether you want to or not, mm. you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You may want to be altruistic and only happy for everyone else, but, you know, at a moment, like, you're in a fishbowl and they just threw down four flakes, like, at some point, you got to grab one of the flakes yourself. You right. know what I mean? Yeah. Like, you just have to. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's tough. That stuff's tough. So it's good to have people who support you. Let's talk about Neighbors for a little bit. Okay. When did the idea first occur to you, and, or do you remember how, how it came to you? Well, I knew that I wanted to write a play. This was a long time ago. I mean, I remember talking to our mutual friend, Jorge Cordova, yeah. at a bar one night, being like, oh, I'm going to write this play, and one character is called Mexico, and one character is called the U.S. And it's going to be like, 
these two clowns, like what is a clown Mexico? What is a clown U.S.? And it's going to be about stereotypes and about the border. And he was like, that's great, but why are they called Mexico and the U.S.? That's stupid. (laughs) (laughs) That's, I remember, that was all I thought. He was like, what, are they going to be like, Mexico? (laughs) You're annoying me. I can see Jorge. Yeah. (laughs) So I was like, okay, he's right about that. I'll Uh give Jorge credit for that. And then because of Inviolate. I mean, it's about having the... I keep going back to this, but I went to an Inviolate meeting and I brought six pages that had... They were called Still Mexico in the U.S. (laughs) And it's funny because then Jorge's wife, Megan, was like, that's stupid. Change it. (laughs) So it was like both that family really hated that idea. They have very strong opinions about this particular topic. Yeah, they hate (laughs) characters named after countries. Megan and Jorge hate that. So I... uh, So that was the beginnings of that idea. Yeah. But you know... I had that idea like seven years ago, and then it took me two years to write it, like six pages. What's your process like? If you're if you're in if you're writing a play, are you trying to write every day? Do you have a word count? Are you no? I wish your, I did. No. What's your process? It used to be. I'm getting much better about this. Uh, I actually had the most productive writing month of my life this month because I've made it more serious. That's awesome. How did but, you do that? Well, what I used to do was I would get a bottle of wine or two. And around midnight, I would listen to whatever album I was into at that moment. And I would drink a lot and write a lot until I basically fell asleep. Were you just trying to get over your inner sensor? I guess. I mean, I think subconsciously I would be like, oh, that's interesting that you have to self-medicate to access those parts of yourself. And, you know, what is all of that about, Bernardo, right? Yeah. But to me, I guess when I was like 26, I just thought it was cool. You know, I'm smoking and drinking and creating a world of, you know, I'm a cool person. Yeah. Well, no, it's dangerous and you shouldn't do it that way. Right. (laughs) But that's what I would do. Right drunk, edit sober is a uh, figurative advice. Yes. Not literal advice. It's not terrible advice. (laughs) 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 I mean, I've written things I like that way. But, but... That's my process is fast in that what I mean by that is I think about an idea for a long time and I'll think about it in the car, I'll think about it on the subway, and then finally I think my body just needs to start writing mm. and then I'll write the first draft in about one or two days. Oh, wow. But that it's not good, no, as you know, as a writer, of course, but not. it says end of play, yeah, and then the writing begins, and that's two or three years of workshopping, thinking about it cutting scenes that you really liked and that you're like oh i can't believe i have to cut that joke it always gets a laugh but it has nothing to do with the play you know yeah um and now i will force myself to write about two hours a day that's awesome Uh, and what that led to was i wrote again they're not good yet but i wrote two plays in november that's amazing. Yeah, but that they're again they're not good, but it is amazing. Do you want to tell us about them or no? Sure, I don't mind. Uh, one play is about bitterness, uh, and it's called Crabs in a Bucket, and it's about these crabs who live in a bucket, and they sit around and talk about the crabs that got out, the crabs that quit and left the bucket, yeah. and the other loser crabs who are in the bucket with them. Mm. And it's a play about it's it's a satire. It's a funny. I hope. And it's a, and they're crabs, so right. they're actual crabs. Actual crabs. <laughs> so see, crab. What do you mean? <laughs> no, crabs. I mean crabs. I mean crabs. <laughs> uh, and it's about bitterness because I've been struggling with my bitterness a lot. You know, I'm 36 now. I've been in this for a long time, and I have bitterness. Yeah. I have things that I'm mad about, or things that I think are bullshit, and then I go, "How did that guy get that when he is this?" And that's not good. And no, I don't like that about myself. 
but I have it and I would be lying if I pretend I didn't have it. Yeah. So I wrote about that. What I wanted to do this month was face two of the things I was most scared of about myself. One was bitterness and the other thing is a more adult thing that I actually feel a little strange talking because your son is in the room also. Yeah. But it's about uh, when two people love each other. Yes. It's about that. That act. Okay, yes. <laughs> uh, holding hands. Yes, it's about holding hands. Got it. It's about putting on gloves. Always wear a glove. <laughs> and holding hands. Um, okay. And it's about that. That that play is the most personal thing I've ever written in my life. Uh, and that one scares me to death. Right. And I really don't want it to exist, but I know that I had to write it. Uh, and I imagine that that play will happen in some way. And I imagine that it'll be a very scary play to do. And to share with people who love me. Right. But I, I think it's important to face those things. Yeah. And be like, is. why do I feel so weird about that? Let's talk about it. Right. Because then I'll feel better about it. <laughs> yeah. Well, then you'll, yeah. you'll explore. Yes. You'll really explore what you're, yeah. what you're feeling, what you're thinking, what you're going through. But talking about feeling good, I'll say, because this month I wrote a lot. It's not that the plays are done, but I feel good about them. Yeah. I read some stuff and I go, that's good, which is weird as an artist. Right, right, yeah? right. But I'm like, oh, that's good. And I, oh, like, wow. I love it like, when you surprise yourself. Cause, like, yeah. you like, yeah, I'll read a paragraph or a story and be like, oh, oh you know what? That's pretty good. Yeah. You know, because so much of what you do isn't. Like, yeah. Not you oh, personally, no. all of us. Of course, <laughs> no. Of course, it's all faili- failure. Oh. So sometimes you're like, wow, I can't believe I wrote that sentence. Yeah. That sounds like a quote. <laughs> yeah, right. You know? Oh, wow. I guess people who wrote quotes were just dummies like me <laughs> yeah, writing things right. until they stumbled upon something that meant something to someone. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. And writing has taken the place of acting in place for me in L.A. Okay. Writing plays is my thing that I do every day now to fill that giant void in my soul. To right? keep you happy. Yeah. yeah. Keep you, yeah. Yeah. It's been amazing. Tell me about the bad hombres. Well, so that was another thing that I no longer do. But that was mostly... So after the election, I was apoplectic. um, And I was very upset. And a lot of the reason I was upset... I know we were all upset for our own reasons. I was very upset because I felt that uh, Trump's story that he told the country included a bad guy. And the bad guy was Mexicans and Latinos. And he just did it in this election with the caravan. Those are not Mexicans. They're Central Americans. But... You know, the brown man is what... Same difference for for his purposes. And so I was really upset because it felt personal. You know, when Bush was president, I was very upset, but it wasn't wasn't as personal for me. Uh, Because actually, Bush had, like, really good immigration policies and stuff like that. Like, more liberal than Obama, by the way. Obama deported more people than anybody ever in the history of this country. But we're not going to talk about that. Uh, (laughs) but, But, you know, I was really upset. And so a friend of mine and I were like... There's this quote by Gary Shandling that I love. It's, don't get mad, get funny. Oh, that's great. I love that quote. And so my friend and I were very drunk on election night. This is a theme in my life. And he, <laughs> he and I were like, let's not get mad, let's get funny. So we started making comedy videos to make fun of Donald Trump. That yeah. was the, the whole point was, we're the jester, he's the king. Let's take the king down a couple notches because he's, he's a fool just like the rest of us. Speak right? truth to power. Yeah. And so for about six months, it was awesome. We made these videos. They did really well in like, you know, viral language or whatever. (laughs) And then we were approached by this company and they said, would you guys do a podcast? And we started doing it and it was great. And it was once a week. And then, you know, Brian has a kid and he started deciding that he didn't want to be pursuing this stuff anymore. 
And we both just decided that, you know, maybe it was time to let it go. I mean, he's still one of my best friends. Like, you know, it's not. But we just were like, okay, that project's done. Right. And it's funny because I don't know how you feel about this, but sometimes when you stop doing a project, you're like, am I a quitter? Yeah, that's so interesting, yeah. But no, what happened was we did Bad Hombres as long as we needed to do Bad Hombres. Right. And I don't have to do Bad Hombres until the day I die so that I'm not a quitter. Exactly. (laughs) You're not a loser for, for, for saying no eventually. Like, this has run its course. Yeah. It's time to do something else. But that's hard psychologically to do. Yeah, it's like my podcast. I, for a while, had guilt about it. And people would call me and be like, hey, man, what's up with the podcast? And I'd be like, am I a quitter? I quit my podcast. Right. No, I didn't quit. I just didn't want to do it anymore. Yeah, and we associate quitting as, as a bad thing, but yeah. it's not necessarily. No, like if you're in a bad relationship, quit the relationship. <laughs> exactly. You quit know, it. I quit my relationship with New York. And am I needs- a quitter? No, I just needed a different thing. Yeah, and when you quit something, you are opening room for yeah. something else to take its place. Yeah. Including just more time to be anything present. Yeah, and for me, I realized like, I get bored with stuff. Like, I did my podcast. Like, it's done. Like, I don't think I'll... I mean, who knows? But, like, I don't... I love podcasts. I listen to them every day. Yeah. Who do you listen to? Uh, Well, my favorite one is the Tony Kornheiser show. Okay. Uh, He's a sports writer, but his show is about everything. Yeah. It's about life. It's about politics. And I like him because he's a ornery old jewish man <laughs> and i have always been attracted to ornery old jewish men <laughs> like i love don rickles yeah i like I, that's just a funny thing to me pti is a appointment viewing in this yes household. oh really okay yeah. so i love will bond but for me it's tony kornheiser i really want to hear his take on trump saying that you know finland taught him that we should <laughs> rake the forest or whatever right. i I just like him. It's almost like he's one of my close friends. It's really weird. Yeah. But I just want to hang out with him every single day. I get it. Like today at some point, after you and I hang out, (laughs) I will listen to that for an hour and it will feel like home. Yeah, I get that. Yeah. I get that. And I listen to WTF. Uh, I listen to uh, the Bill Simmons podcast. I like sports a lot. Uh, But those are the main ones. But Tony Kornheiser is the one that I don't miss one. And I listen to Pod Save America, but then I have to stop not because of them, but because politics can make you depressed and very sad. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I listen to The Daily by The New York Times. Those, yeah. Yeah. My favorite podcast ever was Serial's S-Town. Did you ever listen to that? I, I listened to, I did, not all of it. Okay. The character in that, the sort of clock-making guy in Alabama right. who was in the closet, who had these theories about the world... I just love that guy. Again, like an ornery old guy. Yeah. I've always liked those guys. <laughs> yeah. I like the, t- like in the Muppets, I love uh, Sattler and Waldorf. Oh, the two, yeah. I love those guys. Oh, they're great. I love guys that are just mad. Do you aspire to be one yourself? I probably will be one of those guys, but I like those guys. Yeah. I've always, they're funny to me because they're so mad. Like being mad is funny. It's so funny to get mad. <laughs> 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 it's hilarious. You know, it's like, oh, that guy cut you off in traffic. And now as a human, you have to go like, prepare on my, you suck. Yeah. And then you go back to listening to your radio. It's funny. <laughs> <laughs> I just like mad people. They make me laugh. Yeah. Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah. I've, I've recently <laughs> reached a stage where I, I'm just not like that. I, I think I find it so um, tiresome. Oh, I agree people, with you. People's anger. And oh. <laughs> especially over things you can't control. Well, I so I agree with you. That's why it makes me laugh. Okay. Because because anger is someone thinking they have control over something. Right. I'm like you're just looking like a dummy. 
Yeah. Because you want to have control over a thing <laughs> yeah. that, like, none of this matters. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the only thing, like I said, like, my son matters. But, like, yeah. like, that I'll get upset about. If someone tried to, like, hurt my son, I'll get mad. Yeah. Because that matters. But, like, yeah. oh, you you didn't make the red light because the dummy in front of you was texting. Like, you're going right. to be fine. And that's not surprising. <laughs> yeah. Like, that, that's yeah. my own anger. It always amazes me. That, oh, like, me too. I, that I'm shocked. Like something bad happened to me while I was driving. Yeah. Like, like why? Why is that yeah. ever a surprise? <laughs> and that's why it's funny to me that you get mad that something crappy happened while you were driving. Yeah. That's hilarious. Because of course something bad happens when you drive. But I do it too. Yeah. I get mad all the time. Uh, yeah. Are you a reader? Do you read? Uh, no. I wish I was. I used to be. I think I do my reading online. I read a lot of internet articles and things. But no, I always wish I read more. Yeah. Uh, I was at one point in my life, I, I read a lot. I don't know what happened. I honestly think it's the internet. It's just too easy. <laughs> yeah. Do you like, have a, uh, do you have a movie you think everybody should see? Yes. I have lots of movies I think everybody should see. Tell, tell me some. I don't, I don't mean to sound pretentious, but I really, this is one of my favorite movies ever is, uh, Talk to Her by Almodovar. It's just, it's perfect. It's such an amazing movie. Yeah. That movie, it starts and I just start crying. No shit. Like, I just cry for two hours. It's just the way, everything about it, the music, the characters, the story, it's so beautiful and tragic, and I just love it. All right, I will definitely check that out. Yeah, I love that movie. Do you have a favorite documentary? Uh, every single one my wife has worked on. I was about on. to say, let's talk about, let's talk about being married to an artist yeah. who has a different field, yeah. but related and what is that like? And then I would love recommendations that yeah. she she that she's done, and then things she yeah. likes as well. Well, my wife is a documentary film editor, as was her mom. Her mom was one of the first documentary filmmakers. Like, That's these are badass so women. Cool. Yeah. Okay, this is not a world like. There's not a lot of documentary film editors that are women, so it's pretty cool that my wife does it. And uh, she's got me really into documentaries because that's she always says like reality is way more interesting than fiction. Uh, and so my favorite, she's done a lot of movies I like a lot. Uh, my favorite of hers is called Another World, and it's about the kids who took over, who did Occupy Wall Street. Oh, cool. And it's, I think it speaks to me because of my year in Mexico, because it's about these kids who really wanted to change the world. Yeah. And then the world at the end says, you got to leave the park. And then they go, did we change the world? But my answer is yes, because we all say 99% and the 1% now. And none of us said that before them. Right. So they at least let us think that, hey... It's weird. All those people have all the money. Yeah. That's kind of messed up. <laughs> How did that happen? Right. We were all eating Cheetos and watching NFL, and we didn't realize that we got screwed. And I think they're awesome, and I'm proud of my wife for her work on that. How does she pick her, her jobs? Or, or do you know? I honestly do you think... Do talk about it? Or? Well, my wife's mom says this thing. There's three ways to choose a job. One is, does it make you a lot of money? Okay. Yeah. Two is, does it change the world? And number three is, does it make you happy? And you only say yes if something has two out of three of them. Oh, I love that. Say that again. So does it make you a lot of money? Yep. A lot. Okay, yep. we're talking about a lot yeah. of money. Does it make you happy? And does it change the world? So sometimes it makes you happy and it, makes you cha and it changes the world. That's why you do a play, right? right? That's why I was a member of Inviolent. It made me very happy and it changed the world. Right. I believe that. It did it make me a lot of money? It did not. Uh, but it fulfilled two very important things, right? Yeah. Uh, so my wife uses that method, I think. But at first, you know, when she was starting out like me, she just said yes to anything. And then yeah. it just 
happenstance, that director she worked with once is doing another movie and they like her, so she works with them again, you know? Yeah. I'm very proud of my wife that the director she works with always ask her to come back. That's and I think that a, means that there's something thing. really cool. And she's worked with amazing people like Oscar winners. I mean, my wife is, you know, she's awesome. It's she's a badass. Yeah. So, and then the last movie she did is called Do You Trust This Computer? And it's about AI. And if you watch it, you'll want to throw your phone out the window <laughs> yeah. and uh, never interact with the machine ever again. Yeah. It's uh, time to go off the grid. Oh, yeah. Big time. Oh, we're screwed. <laughs> yeah. Outstanding. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I want to thank you for your time. I got just got oh. a few more questions. These are kind of random, but uh, great. I'm into it. Yeah. Uh, so hypothetical, but also like I almost didn't ask this, but because of all the forest, the fires that are going on yeah. in your area. But let's say hypothetically, your apartment there's a fire. You know, your family uh-huh. pets are out safe. And, but you can grab three things, and in this hypothetical, you can grab a refrigerator. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, you know, uh, what would you grab? What physical objects are important to you? I would grab my grandmother's poetry book. My grandmother was a poet in Mexico. No, really? And I would grab her three books. I know where they are. I'd grab that. Okay. I would grab uh, Diego's bunny. Diego has a bunny that he goes to bed with. It's a little stuffed bunny, yeah. and he needs it. He, like, he needs it. Yeah. I would grab that. And then I would probably grab uh, something for my wife. I'm trying to think. Like, I don't know. I would grab her. <laughs> I know that doesn't count. Uh, I don't know. Yeah. Oh, well, probably like my laptop because it has all my plays. But those are emailed, so I would be fine. Yeah. Yeah, something like that. Definitely the bunny in the books for sure. I would do that. What... um. I'm going to just steal this from Tim Ferriss. Uh-huh. What purchase of $100 or less have you bought that has impacted your life in a positive way? Oh, man. Yeah, I mean, I don't buy a lot of things. I'm actually not like, I don't, I like right, I own, this is my one pair of jeans. Like I really, <laughs> it's the one pair of jeans I have. I believe you. Yeah. I just bought my second. These are my oh, second well, pair of jeans. That's right amazing. So I'm, I'm yeah. with you. Uh, I mean, okay, this is a, a, a thing that was really important. I, when I was living in Mexico, I went to an art museum, and I bought a book because it had an interesting cover, and it was a book of Charles Bukowski poems. Uh, yeah. And I, at this point, was 17. I'd never read anything like that. And it affected my life. Yeah. I read every single book he had ever written after that. And that. in a way, it opened up my eyes to what art can possibly be. Right. And it was the first thing I had found. Like, my parents never told me about him. My teachers never told me about him. Like, I found out about this guy. I, for a while, thought I was the only guy. And then I realized, no, everybody knows who that guy is. But it that probably cost me 20 pesos. I mean, it was like, this, it was a thin little black book I got. In a, and it was in Spanish. Yeah. But it led me to reading all of his books in English. Yeah. That's so that, that was actually a really important purchase. If there's somebody who doesn't know Bukowski, where should they start? Post think? office. That's my favorite of his books. Okay. He was a post office worker in L.A., and it's just a set book about an ornery old guy. <laughs> yeah, goes back to that. Here. Yeah. And he is a post office worker. He's in these crappy cargo shorts walking up hills in L.A. Miserable, but he has writing at night. Yeah. And drinking and, you know, all of the stuff Bukowski talks about. Yeah. And that, so that, that, that's my favorite of his books. That's cool. Yeah. Uh, give me your ideal Saturday. And I want two different versions. I want one now that of your life present now. Yeah. But then I also want one from 10 years ago like what's your ideal saturday 
My ideal Saturday now is that I wake up, but then my son somehow woke up at like eight <laughs> instead of six thirty. Right. And then uh, probably my wife and I interact in a romantic way, <laughs> and then uh, and Hold then hands, yeah. <laughs> yeah, wear gloves. Uh, and then I and then we go to brunch and eat like pancakes and croissants and bread and carbs yeah. and coffee. <laughs> and then we come home, we take a nap. And then like that night we go to dinner with friends we love and like we solve all the world's problems and drink and eat and then come home and go to bed. All right. That, that's a great Saturday. That's that's like an ideal Saturday for me now. All right. And 10 years ago it would have been? It would have been I wake up, I go to rehearsal. I am, you know, in rehearsal for eight hours. And then afterward, the cast and I, who we've all become best friends, go to a bar and solve all the world's problems until four in the morning. You know? Yeah. That would have been my ideal. All right. I want to ask one more question. I want you to tell a story. Mm-hmm. You can pick the story, but I'm going to give two suggestions. Okay. Uh, one would be the soccer goalie story. Okay. <laughs> Do you remember which one? I'm yes, about? of course I know that story. Okay, the other one is <laughs> I heard you were in prison in Slovakia. Slovakia. So you can choose either story to end on. Oh, uh, wow. That's funny. I feel like the audience is in good hands. Uh, well,. The Slovakia or a one. Third one, if you want. I mean, no, no, I'll tell. I'll tell. I mean, it's 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 about poop, so I I hope people are okay <laughs> with that. But I'll tell it because it's it's actually a very touching story about my dad. Yeah. It's funny. A friend of mine said that I should make it into a short film about a father and a son, and it is. So this is what happened. I was a goalie and I played soccer. I was about fifteen, and I got chosen to play on a club team, and that was like a big deal. Right. And we had a very important game. And this was like a big thing for me in my quote-unquote goalie career. And I was very nervous. I was very, very nervous. And my dad drove me to the game. It was 7 o'clock in the morning. And my stomach really hurt. And I thought I needed to use the restroom. And so I did. And then we went to the game. And my stomach still hurt. And it was bad. And then we show up and the game's about to start. And my stomach is really bad. Like really, really bad. <laughs> And anyway, the first play of the game, first play, somehow a ball gets loose and it's one-on-one, which means it's me versus a guy, and I have to stop the ball. And the guy shoots, and I dive, and I stop the ball, but the ball hits my stomach. And in that moment, I think, I am going to poop my pants. <laughs> I really do. Right. And so I realize I still have like 80 minutes of this game, and I'm not going to make it. So I fake an injury. <laughs> And I pretend that my ankle is hurt. Yeah. And the team doctor comes over. He's like, you seem fine, but he seems in pain. The pain was because I needed to use right. the restroom. Yeah. And my dad is like, well, I'll take you to the hospital. So my dad puts me in the car. We get in the car. And then my dad's like, I have to say to my dad while we're driving away, I go, dad, I, I didn't need to. I, I, I just need to use the bathroom. <laughs> and my dad is like okay <laughs> right and he's like let's find the bathroom and we go <laughs> i can't believe i'm telling this story my wife is gonna be so upset and there there's a <laughs> jack-in-the-box okay yeah and i go and i rush out of the car and when i try to open the door of the jack-in-the-box it's locked but in that motion things are released <laughs> right and i'm standing there in a goalie uniform right so if you don't know what that is it's like a shiny yellow shirt short <laughs> shorts and like shin guards and cleats yeah. and there's a guy inside the jack-in-the-box looking at me and he sees what i've done oh my god and my dad sees what i've done right and my dad is like 
My dad had a lot of options in that moment. <laughs> yeah. Like, how do you react to that? Now that I have a son, like, yeah. I, I hope that I can react as cool as my dad did to it. Because what he did was he lowered the window and he said, get in the car. In a very nice, not angry, just, hey, get in the car. Yeah. We drove. He took me to a gas station. He said, go into the bathroom, clean yourself up. And I did. And then I got in the car and we drove back home. Silence. Total silence. And what are you feeling at this point? Shame, embarrassment. Yeah, I mean, yeah. just so ashamed of myself. Right. Uh, I, I didn't play in the game. Like, what happened? I'm 15. Like, I hadn't done that since I was like three. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. it was this weird thing. And it was ridiculous. I mean, it's hilarious. It's really funny. But it's, you know, I was 15. And at 15, you really care about being cool. It was the yeah. opposite of cool. And I remember we pull up to my house. And my dad hits the garage door. And as the garage door is opening, my dad turns to me, looks me in the eyes, and he goes, that happened to me once, too. And I knew he was lying. Yeah. I knew in my... I still know to this day... <laughs> That didn't happen to him because who's pooped outside of a jack-in-the-box? <laughs> Nobody. Me. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> really. I could go on Facebook. Nobody would be like, hey, me too. Right. <laughs> that's my story. That's me. Right? Yeah. And my dad said, that's happened to me too. And then I knew that he was lying, but it felt so nice that my dad was trying to say to me, it's fine that that happened. Yeah. It's totally okay. And then I ended up playing on that team and I like won awards and it was like everything ended up being fine. I was just, but it was a dad moment. And now as a dad, like I tell that story, it makes me want to cry. Yeah. And it's such a stupid story. It's about pooping. <laughs> <laughs> but it's moving to me that my dad, he was there for me. Yeah. And it's funny, I'm no longer ashamed of it. That's why I can tell the story because my dad in that moment said, you never have to hide this story. Yeah. Like there's nothing, it's just funny. Yeah. You just laugh about it the rest of your life. Because it's ridiculous, that. you know? Yeah. And he gave me that. So thanks, Dad. That's amazing. Yeah. Where can people find you on the interwebs? Uh, you go to jackintheboxpoop.com. Uh, <laughs> you'll find all my work on there. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> no, uh, if you go to... I have a website, but there, nothing happens on that website. I mean, the only thing I would actually plug is like, if you go to New Play Exchange, which is a website for plays, I have my plays on there. That's and I would great. love for you to produce my plays. <laughs> That's honestly what I care about in my life. So yeah. they, I have a play that was done in L.A. last year that I'm very proud of called The Giant Void of My Soul. Read that and produce it at your theater company of any size anywhere in the world. Or I have two new plays, Crabs in a Bucket. And then the other one, I still can't say the title in front of your son. I feel so embarrassed. But, That's okay. But we, I can give you a link or something I'll like that. I'll put it in the show notes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's what I would plug. All right. Bernardo, thanks for being here. Thanks for doing this. Thank you for having me, man. That was a lot of fun. Yeah. All right, man. Okay. Thank you for listening to the Origin Story Podcast. The show is produced by Pinecone Turkey. To learn more about Pinecone Turkey, visit pineconeturkey.com, where you can sign up for the Flock email, a twice-a-month newsletter that delivers a short film, poetry, a short story, and visual art right to your inbox. 